Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. And welcome to episode 69 of the Partly Political Broadcast. Yes, this show has finally reached the comical number that doesn't really work in a political world where brown nosing is more rampant. I'm Tina Duyeb and I believe it was a misrepresentation when the media reported that Prime Minister Theresa May shed a little tear when she saw the election exit polls. Actually, I'm pretty sure what really happened was that she used her robot arms to tear a little shed into, out of anger, like a reject ghost in the shell that's even more disappointing than the recent film version. Though, sadly, when it comes to the government, very much unlike the film, I wish they had been completely whitewashed. Yes, we have now had one year of Prime Minister May, and the most the UK has achieved in that time seems to be the discovery that she has limited yet existing emotions. Despite this monumental discovery, her reign has mainly been highlighted by the Chief Auditor of the National Audit Office, stating that May's government have left hopes of a successful Brexit at risk of falling apart like a chocolate orange. An odd comparison, as usually the only way to open a chocolate orange is to throw them at something or hit them with something very large and blunt. Not only, unlike Brexit negotiations, are they pretty sturdy, as I find out every Christmas when it takes me two hours to open one, but also, unlike Brexit negotiations, people like chocolate chocolate oranges, and were Terry in charge of speaking with Michel Barnier instead, we'd all be fairly relieved. Sadly, we have Brexit secretary and man who always looks like he's just woken up in the garden after going to sleep in the spare room, David Davis, as our main Brexit negotiator. Davis has called for both sides in the negotiations to get down to business on Brexit, which sounds a lot like a euphemism for shitting all over it, which, judging by the last few weeks, is entirely plausibly what he's going to do. Foreign Secretary and first successful cross of a golden retriever with a large dull thudding sound, Boris Johnson, told the EU that they could go whistle if they expected any so-called divorce payments from the UK. The EU negotiator returned the ball in a way that would have made Federer weep like Chilik by saying, I don't hear any whistling, I just hear the clock ticking. Blam, 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 15 love to Barnier, slam in your face. Two days later, then, the government explicitly alleged that they would pay an exit bill, so we can only assume that Boris meant it as the best way to signal him for when it needed paying up. To be fair, if they did use a dog whistle to do it, I'm sure he'd be there with promises of money in seconds. 
Meanwhile, Chancellor and suited Willow the Wisp, Philip Hammond, said that public sector workers are overpaid. If he really believes that, I assume he, as a public sector worker himself, will be taking a voluntary pay cut, ASAP, in order to give the money to a nurse or a firefighter. This is one of a number of stories about Hammond that's been leaked to the press in what appears to be the beginnings of a new campaign for Theresa May's replacement, which, considering the choice that will probably be available, no amount of preemptive slurring could make it worse than it already is. The other Philip Hammond story that was in the press said that he'd mentioned that driving a train was so easy, even a woman could do it, a tale Hammond has since denied. Which is good, as not only is that a hugely sexist thing to say, but also a bold one for the Chancellor in a government who's so constantly on the wrong track. Former Prime Minister and flying shoe receptacle Tony Blair has made his quarterly public reminder that he still exists. While no one has asked for this, or particularly wanted it, I hear it's actually just to keep various political impressionists in business, which is a far more noble cause than what we've all assumed, which is him just photobombing every second of calm in the Labour Party in order to ruffle things up again. Though, to be fair, at least photobombing is the safest manifestation of his preferred sport. This time, though, Blair has stated that Labour leader and human terrier Jeremy Corbyn could actually become Prime Minister. Yes, Tony, that's how democracy works. Any leader of any party could actually become Prime Minister. I mean, that's how you did it, remember? I look forward to him popping up in another four months to say something about how it's possible that a dog could win Britain's Got Talent. Blair also reckons, based on chats that he's had in the EU, that some European leaders could compromise on freedom of movement. I wonder if this is on the basis that if we promise to not let Blair leave the country and therefore never harass them ever again, then the rest of us can do what on earth we like. In the United States of America, horror sequel Donald Trump Jr. has stood up for political transparency in the way you might prove a glass door has transparency by walking into it face first and breaking your nose. Releasing them before the New York Times could, DJT Jr. tweeted copies of his emails in order to be totally transparent. These emails were between him and British PR Rob Goldston and explicitly stated that he was to meet a Russian lawyer to get information on Hillary Clinton. But these emails also stated that the information he was hoping to gain are part of Russia and the government's support for Mr Trump. And Donald Trump Jr. posted that on his own Twitter feed. Yep. Really. You wonder if he'd had it, if he'd have posted the so-called PP video of his dad to prove that it didn't exist, or perhaps post pictures of him as a kid to prove he had a totally normal upbringing, despite the fact there are clear images of Eric Trump eating human flesh in the background. It will be a bizarre turn of events if the only way to impeach Donald Trump for his presidency is via his son's best efforts to support him on social media. Trump, of course, defended his son, if you can call it that, by saying that Junior is a high-quality person, which may explain why he's so dense with constant buffering issues when trying to communicate. Speaking of President of the USA and confused Edam Ball, Donald Trump was visiting President Macron in France over the weekend, with one of the highlights being him looking very baffled by a marching band playing Daft Punk hits. It must be confusing for Trump that Daft Punk are a French electronic duo and not just what people shout at him wherever he goes. Or perhaps maybe Donald was just upset by somebody else blowing their own trumpet for once. Trump said that he will not be visiting the UK until May can guarantee him a better reception. Though it's not really our fault that he insists on still using a shitty Samsung Galaxy S3. Oh, and news just in, Education Secretary Justine Greening has announced an extra £1.3 billion for schools with absolutely no indication where that money will come from other than efficiencies and savings within existing budgets. I wonder if they'll all just be scrapping all subjects and ploughing it into teaching kids how to create money from absolutely nowhere. 
Hello, hello, hello. Uh, what an exciting week, eh? A female Doctor Who, which is great news and so nice that a show that can travel all over time insists on progressing forwards. What a relief. My only concern, though, to be honest, is that if dickheads keep finding more and more TV and films to boycott due to their own prejudices, they'll eventually realise that they can leave their mum's house and go outside. I sort of worry that maybe we should just make tons, tons more sexist TV in order to keep them all trapped indoors and not bothering us in the real life. And, of course, Game of Thrones is back. How exciting is that? It's one of my favourite shows in the world. And I think that's because I find it a brilliant bit of escapism. You know, I love watching it and just for a little while being immersed in a world where their political system seems more fair and less cutthroat than ours does. Anyway, thank you lots for continuing to tune into the show. Uh, this is the penultimate podcast for the summer, as after next week's show, I'm going to be heading to the Edinburgh Fringe to generally avoid nice weather and pay two amounts of rent in one go. Fun. Uh, I'm sure there's something else I'm going to be doing while I'm there there as well uh oh wait oh yeah that's it sorry uh my new comedy show um in fact if you're going to be up there my new show is called miserably happy it's at the waverly bar on the pbh free fringe every day from the 5th of august to the 27th of august uh, except the 15th and the 19th and that is going to be at 2 30 p.m in the afternoon uh, do come along i'm feeling quite good about the show now actually and it definitely has some jokes in which is what you want and i say banana once which is what you want um and the rest of it is sort of a ranty uh hour all about humanity's failures but full of jokes, so it's fine. Um, I have got some more previews before I head to the Fringe, including uh, this Wednesday, if you listen to this podcast quickly enough, uh, that's at Hilarity Bites in Darlington. Then the Cambridge Comedy Festival on Saturday on the top deck of a bus. Yes, really. And I think that's on at 6pm, which is quite early. Uh, and then on Sunday 23rd, I'm going to be at the Neath Comedy Festival. Uh, that's also in the afternoon, uh, along with Beck Hill and Bishop K. Alley. And then my last two previews are at Masham Town Hall in Yorkshire on July the 25th, where I, I know no one in Masham, so if you are near there, please come along um and the Ballam free fringe on july the 29th which is a brilliant event in Ballam, and like its title says is free uh, and it all happens at the bedford and it's all free edinburgh previews with all money that's donated after each show going towards the free fringe in edinburgh and supporting that which is a good idea um i'm on on the saturday alongside some really great acts like howard reed sophie hagen trevor lock and more so do pop along and if you just search for Ballam free fringe online you'll find all the details uh, or all the details for all of those are also on my website at tnndm.co.uk forward slash gigs or you know constantly on my Twitter feed or Facebook page because I am shameless um, thank you to those of you who added some lovely and very very heartwarming reviews to the iTunes page this past week um, really hugely appreciated and very much made my days several of them um, if you haven't done that and you would like to help promote this show to unsuspecting ears uh, please head to iTunes Stitcher Podbean or your listening app of choice and give the podcast a lovely five star review eh I mean it's going to be the only five star reviews I get between now and the end of August at the Edinburgh Fringe so it will be much appreciated um, also if you could please spread the word about PPB in general and if you'd like to donate to all of this happening please as always head to patreon.com forward slash parpolebro for a monthly thing if you can or ko-fi.com that's ko-fi.com forward slash parpolebro for a one-off donation or if you're up at the fringe or at any of the previews and this is something I thought I'd throw in and steal from Stuart Goldsmith at the Comedians Comedian Podcast feel free to just slip me some money for this show if you want uh, with the phrase I ran out of brown envelopes because that sort of feels appropriate for a politics podcast, doesn't it? Um, I mean, if you had something that would serve better a real-life PPB donation, um, then please let me know at all the usual communication stations in the nation for your education. Um, right, one last bit of admin. In last week's show, uh, I said the number of university applications hadn't fallen
fallen recently. And then two days later, UCAS released the figures for this year and they're down by 4%. So either a ton of you are students, you all listened to last week's show and you thought, nah, fuck that, I'm not doing uni, I'm buying a tractor like Tiernan suggested. Or I'm starting to wonder if rather than the date of the show in the title of each podcast, maybe I should just put an expiration date instead, which would be about five minutes after I release it. Oh, I really, really hope you've all bought big tractors. If you do, let me have a go, yeah? I'd be brilliant at it. Um, also, uh, what, the other other bit of last bit of admin, uh, do you remember way, way back in episode 29, or long ago, do you remember that, when we were all just we? Um, I spoke to wildlife campaigner and the very aptly named bird enthusiast Mark Avery about banning grouse shooting and how damaging it was not only to the grouse but also the environment. Um, well, he has asked me to ask you, uh, you there, the listener, me, the person doing the talking, if you're a fan of, uh, you know, other living things um, other than yourself, uh, if you can sign up to a thunderclap called the Inglorious Twelfth, which is to highlight that the killing of the raptors that would feed on grouse, and that's raptors the bird, not raptors like the small dinosaurs um i think they're already extinct anyway uh the killing of the raptors that would feed on the grouse is illegal but they're being hunted in order to have more grouse on people to hunt uh, very rich people so if you're against all that then the grouse hunting starts on 12th of august and they want to get a thunderclap trending then so if you head to thunderclap.it and look up the project the inglorious 12th please sign up uh, and i'll tweet that link on the partly political uh, the purple road twitter group and on the facebook group as well that was a lot of babbling no more babbling right instead the show and on this week's show i have poached maha rafi atal from the talking politics podcast uh, which is one of my favorites and she ex- explains to me what on earth is happening in india at the moment and i'll tell you it's loads and i just didn't know um there's also brexit things obviously and there is my feeble attempt to sum up at least some of the current mess in the u.s uh, which sounds like a wonderful musical and in fact if they were to make a hamilton like musical out of it in the future i think it would just feature mostly sad trombone noises while the cast repeatedly punch themselves in the face. But of course, before that, there is this. Last week, the government unveiled the Taylor Report. Uh, yeah, I assumed it was just to say things have gone downhill since Shake It Off, but actually uh, it ignored Tay-Tay Swift altogether. Didn't even have any recommendations about travelling in your own suitcase. Instead, instead, it was a review of modern working practices by former aide Tony Blair, Matthew Taylor. And it focused specifically on the gig economy. Yet still no mentions of T-Swizz, even though she's done arenas, arena gigs. Seriously, guys, get with it. <clears throat> Sorry. The gig economy, as I know, because I live in it, is a labour market with only short-term contracts or freelance work, aka self-employment, aka zero-hours contracts, aka no responsibility for the businesses, uh, for you and what you do, aka you even try asking for holiday pay and you'll get shut down. For me, that is fine, because my job is to play loads of different comedy gigs all around the world. If, however, you work for the same boss every day delivering overpriced food to ungrateful twats who still can't be asked to stroll down the road and nearly getting mown down by road rage drivers while you're on your way to do that, you're going to wonder just how freelance you are. While many recent businesses such as Uber or Deliveroo thrive on this much to the detriment of those who work for it, the Taylor Report states that workers who work for companies like that should be reclassified as dependent contractors with extra benefits. I'm assuming those benefits are holiday pay and sick pay, not a kind of friends with benefits type scenario in case you feel horny and lonely between shifts. There's currently estimated to be 1.1 million people working in Britain's gig economy, covering employment areas from accountancy to cleaning, plumbing and courier services. And so removing exploitation and making these far more viable areas to work in would help quite a lot of people. 
The report also recommends to the government that strategies must be put in place so workers aren't just stuck on the national living wage, that the government needs to be accountable for a national strategy to provide good work for all, and that they should stop non-wage costs of employing people, such as the apprenticeship levy, so companies can afford to take on people starting out in work. Taylor also suggested that cash-in-hand work be phased out, as in stopped slowly rather than, you know, being attacked with Star Trek guns. And as a comedian, this would probably mean a far longer wait for me for quite a lot of my wages, but at the same time, a far smaller likelihood that I'll spend it all on snacks on the way home because, hey, look how many Krispy Kremes I can buy with this one of notes. Oh, God, I feel sick. But while most of the report sounds good, Theresa May hasn't guaranteed she'll be able to put any of it into legislation as she'd need cross-party support for that after her rather shitty election went all balls. Currently, judging by responses from Labour, uh, they are indeed a cross-party, as they don't think Taylor's recommendations are going to be enough. The Shadow Business Secretary, Rebecca Long-Bailey, said, If it looks like a job and smells like a job, then it is a job. And that is a phrase I've been saying in a Scottish accent with jobby instead of job. Oh my god, it's a lot of fun here. Just, if it looks like a jobby and smells like a jobby, then it's a jobby. That's oh, good. But Labour think if a worker is carrying out work on behalf of an employer, then they shouldn't be exploited as flexible workers, which sounds pretty fair. And Theresa May said when announcing the report that with good work can come dignity and self-worth, which is true unless you're worth nothing, are paid nothing and aren't even considered an employee throughout. Still on the plus side, if that is May's belief that good work brings dignity and self-worth, then she must be feeling proper shitty right about now. The Home Office have a new drug strategy that will target legal highs. You sort of wonder if the first step of that should just be to call them something else. I mean, even illegal highs gets the message across a bit better, doesn't it? It's the least you could do. It's also looking at tackling chemsex or using substances as part of sexual activity. Although, don't worry, I don't think that includes alcohol, though, so us British people will still be able to breed. New laws were introduced last year to criminalise making and selling legal but not legal highs, and there has been a 2.5% drop in adults from 16 to 59 who take drugs, although part of me wonders if that's just because, with the cost of living as it is, not many people can go out at the weekends and mosh their faces off because £2.50 for a bottle of water is fucking ridiculous. But there is much to praise in the new strategy that the government have announced, with drugs treatment campaigns and charities really complementing the big focus on recovery and rehabilitation, and there is a key point in there on helping prison officers help drug offenders recover in prisons, which is a massive issue at the moment, which you'll know from past podcasts. There is, though, some evidence to suggest that the best method to deal with all of these issues would be decriminalising drugs. And looking at countries like Portugal, they have decriminalised all drugs. It's had a huge reduction in users, deaths and people injecting drugs since they've done it. But the Home Office aren't that keen. And to be honest, you know what? I don't blame them, but only because if you were to decriminalise drugs, we'd have to call them legal, but formerly known as not legal, but legal highs, and that's a little bit much, isn't it, mate? You know the House of Lords, right? You know them, right? They're like a collection of wise elders if some of them weren't that wise or they're elderly, but they have a lot of cash and useful mates. You know, it's like if Joe Wicks sat on the Council of Elrond and while everyone was trying to make important decisions about Mordor, he kept doing burpees and just pissing everyone right off. Anyway, some of the wiser ones of this Elder Council slash House of Lords have written a letter stating that it would be dangerous for self-aware scrotum Rupert Murdoch and Fox to acquire all the shares of B-Sky-B, as that would give him access to TV viewing, internet and phone records of 13 million households. They warned that if he used that for political leverage, it could be very dangerous if used to create targeted advertising. I mean, imagine that, just in the middle of Game of Thrones, there's something specifically targeted to you about how the Conservatives would stop that dickhead outside parking like a wank stain. Uh, to be fair, thinking about that, that would really work. I mean, how are you in space for two cars when you only have one? You've only got one car. 
Anyway, sorry. I mean, judging by Murdoch's record so far, I am really amazed that he's allowed to do anything. I mean, really, if he could, he'd use Christmas cracker jokes and thought for the day on BBC Radio for political leverage, if that was possible. 13 million households data by acquiring Sky. I mean, what next for Murdoch? Wanting to acquire the actual Sky properly, like a real fucking supervillain? Well, hopefully, like in films, the elders in the House of Lords will warn a young warrior and he or she will be able to slay Murdoch with, uh, I don't know, a custard pie didn't work, did it? Silver, maybe? Holy water? Well, just fingers crossed, Ofcom will reject the takeover bid and we'll all be saved. The old stereotypical reason for travelling to India is that people would go there to find themselves. But actually, since India elected leader of the Bharatiya Janata Party, Narendra Modi, as Prime Minister in 2014, heading there now, you'd probably find yourself just as angry about politics as you are anywhere else. Modi started the populist authoritarian fad two years before Trump or Brexit, and while on the one hand India's GDP in 2015 made it the fastest growing economy in the world, on the other hand there is constant rising inequality, pollution levels second only to China, and a growing rise in Islamophobia prompted by Modi's militant Hindu views. On the plus side, as a result for that, it's still the top holiday destination for cows. So, how are things for the people of India right now? Is Modi really a bad guy when he looks like an Indian Bill Oddie? Surely that makes him more of a goodie. And why do we hear so little about what's going on in India in the rest of the world? I mean, really, coverage of Modi and India has been so slim in the UK in the past couple of years that the only time he was in our papers recently was when Theresa May visited Delhi and the owner of Cobra Beer said she was economically illiterate. Yeah, the only time we saw Modi was in the background of Theresa May being slagged off because she's that awful. So this week, I thought it was a really good idea to speak to Maha Rafi Atal. Maha is the editor-in-chief of the Cambridge Review of International Affairs, and she's also a current PhD student at the Cambridge University, researching the roles of multinational corporations as governing authorities in India, Kenya and South Africa. As well as all of that, she is a journalist, and I have regularly enjoyed hearing her political analysis on the excellent Talking Politics podcast, which is one of my weekly favourites. So I poached Maha from that podcast. She very kindly agreed to talk to me uh, on this one. And I asked her what is going on in the most populous democracy in the world. Now, uh, before we start, a very, very quick... Excuses. So, sorry, despite everything sounding fine during recording, the track with Maha's voice has an odd rattle to the end of her sentences. I don't know why. I've tried my best to fix it, but it is impossible. And I also don't think it sounds too bad, uh, especially if you just imagine she's sitting in a room with a tiny percussionist, like really small. Uh, which, I mean, to be honest, that's how I wish all my interviews went. If only so every now and then someone could hit a symbol so the uh, rest of you actually know when I've attempted a joke. But there you go. Hopefully this won't be too annoying and instead you'll just enjoy the drum remix of what was a very interesting chat indeed. Here's Maha. Hi Maha, thank you very much uh, for talking to me today. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, about India, really. Um, India's had a huge change in its democracy in the last few years because of Narendra Modi. Um, as someone uh, who mainly watches UK news, I feel that I don't know anything about him uh, or really anything about why he's a difference for India and why his regime has been different. Um, what's changed? Right, well, so... Um Narendra Modi became the Prime Minister of India in the spring of 2014. Um, so we're just past the three-year mark now. Um, and it has been a big change, although I don't know if it's been a necessarily unprecedented one. Um, now, he represents the main kind of center-right party 
um, in Indian politics and um, which is the BJP. But that, you know, like as you might have in a lot of large democracies, indeed, how you might have here, um, you know, the BJP has a is a broad spectrum so that it does have a genuine wing that is a kind of conventionally center right wing of the party that's interested in pro-market policies and liberal tax reform and so forth. Um, and then it has a much harder far-right wing um, that is very committed to a political philosophy called Hindutva, which means literally means Hindu-ness, um, but it's, in practice what it's about is a kind of Hindu supremacy. So the thesis of Hindutva is that India is essentially a Hindu nation. The other minority communities that exist there are interlopers of some kind, um, and therefore the state should be structured in such a way that they're given secondary status. Um, and Modi comes very, very much from the second wing of the BJP, um, came up in politics as a lot of BJP leaders of his generation did, um, initially by participating in um, an organization called the RSS, which is a a sort of paramilitary organization that has these cadet corps in different parts of the country. And at a youth level, they do a lot of like Boy Scout type stuff. Um, at an adult level, it becomes a little more menacing what they're involved in. Um, and they're very strongly associated with the far right of the BJP and that a lot of the people who come up on the far right of the party um, you know, get their leadership training and their early networking skills and so forth by participating in these cadet corps. He um, came up in the state politics of his state. So India has a federal system of government, maybe more similar to say what you would have in the U.S. than what you have in the U.K. And he came up in the local politics of Gujarat state and then became the chief minister of that state. And that's the job that he had immediately before becoming his party's candidate for prime minister. Um, and as a kind of window into the sort of politics he represents, um, Gujarat, like many parts of India, but especially many parts of the north of India, um, has a history of Hindu-Muslim tension, Hindu-Muslim violence. And there was um, an incident in 2002 where um, some Hindu pilgrims were on a train going to um, uh, like a holy site for a pilgrimage. There was a fire on the train. Um, there was a suggestion that a um, that a Muslim might have lit the fire, that it might have been a terrorist incident or something like that. Um, and in response to that, um, there were there were riots in which thousands of Muslims were massacred. Um, and not only was he the chief minister at the time, and there were questions about how the law enforcement in the wake of those riots was conducted and why were the perpetrators never found and so forth, but those people that they did find um, gave interviews to journalists and human rights lawyers and so forth in which they said, we had an understanding that the orders to conduct this violence were coming from fairly high up in the local government. Um so that's so that so that was a known thing. Then there was an investigation. Um, Modi was never charged with anything, but that is complicated because the court judgment saying that they couldn't charge him with anything said we don't really have the evidence because it looks like documents have disappeared. And so that that had hung over him as a as a cloud. And if you had told me 15 years ago that that person would then be nominated by his party as their candidate for prime minister, I would have said you're crazy. Um, but the BJP has moved rightward slowly. That particular wing of the party has acquired more and more power. Um you know, I don't know, a variety of things have changed on the ground in Indian politics so that you suddenly found 
a moment in 2014 where he was the candidate and he was doing very well in part because for all of his other flaws, like authoritarian, xenophobic demagogues elsewhere, he's a very charismatic speaker. He's a masterful user of Twitter. Um, the first thing I'd ever seen that reminded me of, you know, that when Donald Trump's Twitter account be, be emerged as a political force, I, it reminded me of Modi's Twitter account. Um, you know, in terms of somebody who clearly doesn't have handlers writing his tweets, who's, you know, says what people are thinking, but they don't say and so forth. And people appreciate that. And um, so I understood why they nominated him, because he's electorally it's it's a very successful persona. But on the other hand, it said a lot that everybody knew that there was this particular incident and this history associated with him. And it just it didn't matter. Um, and in part, it didn't matter because the center left party, the Congress party is in a kind of rut. It's become a kind of dynastic party of the Nehru Gandhi family, and the current leader is a little bit of a dud. And um, so it was, a, there was an, it was a moment where you could run somebody like this and, and they would be um, competitive. But on the other hand, it is the BJP is this big center right coalition. It still has all these business voters who are just really interested in, you know, tax breaks and trade agreements and the, the usual stuff. Um, and so when they ran this campaign, they ran both on we're going to do all this great stuff for Indian business and India's place in the world as an economic power and so forth, um, and also, you know, dog whistle type stuff about a vote for Modi is a vote for implementing some form of the Indupa agenda. And then there was a question. I think. Right, because there's, there's a few sort of similarities there with, with I suppose, politics in the, in the UK and the US at the moment. I mean, there seems to be, uh, as you say, there are kind of collapse of the centre-left, which we've seen quite a lot of places in the last couple of years. Um, but also, interesting, that has, been, has, has there been a consistent rise in Islamophobia in the last few years in India as well as the rest of the world? Um, yeah, I mean, I think in India, it's obviously a much more long-standing thing, right? I mean, you know, goes. I mean, th this is an issue that goes back decades and is part of, you know, the, the very tortured founding of the country in the sense that, you know, at the moment that the British leave the subcontinent, um, you know, two countries are created out of what had been one country, right? India and Pakistan. Um, and which had all been governed as, as British India as one territory, right? And and the territory that's created as Pakistan is 30 years later split in a civil war um, and becomes, you know, one part of it becomes Bangladesh, right? Um, so all of that, that region was British India. And one of the reasons that those, that that land is divided up in the way that it is at the moment of British exit um, in a very painful partition in which hundreds of thousands of people died, um, you know, trying to cross over into the right territory when these lines were drawn, um, is because there were concerns about how a population that was at that time something like 80, 85% Hindu, you know, 15 to 20% Muslim, Christian, other minorities, um, would be able to afford representation to all of its different groups. And so a view develops among a part of the Muslim minority that what we really need is our own state because we'll just disappear as voters um, in this in this larger polity. And so that's sort of how Pakistan comes to be, right? And and that's a whole separate, you know, kind of podcast episode. But India, what what remains as India is created on the assumption that you can have this multi-ethnic, multilingual, secular state that has all these different religions in it and that that should work, right? Um, and and there have been 
moments where that has been, you know, kind of called into question by interreligious violence, sectarian violence, um, all the way through the history of the country. Um, and, and people are familiar with the fact that there's some version of that taking place in Kashmir, but um, that there's sort of lower level things that take place um, all across the country um, and, you know, flare up at different points in history maybe isn't so well known um, out, outside. Um, but I do think that those tensions ebb and flow. Um, and, you know, there was a period in the 90s right up to, in some ways, that 2002 riot was like a like a high watermark for that kind of violence. And it did kind of seem to taper away for a bit after that, because that particular incident was so horrific. Um, and then if you had asked me in the mid-2000s, I think there was a, a point where Indian politics seemed to be shifting away from those issues to other things. Um, and then in 2008, there was a a uh, terrorist incident um, in Bombay, I think that did make international news in November. Um, it was a hostage incident. Um, and and as you might imagine would happen after an incident like that, um, this particular aspect of Indian politics suddenly found itself back on the, um, you know, kind of... Sure. And you were saying you because earlier you you referred to, to Modi as as an authoritarian demagogue. Is that is that just because of his kind of religious views, or what, what else is he no, doing to kind of right, earn a title no, like and that, that? And that actually, to me, is more disturbing, right? So, um, on the one hand, I don't think you're going to see a national level of what happened in Gujarat at a where you're going to have state-sanctioned, enormous, high-scale violence of that type, right? Um, that I think he's too smart to do that at a national scale. But what I do think is happening um, is he is somebody who, you know, doesn't trust a lot of people, including senior people in his own party. He has his own particular set of advisors who have been with him since Gujarat, who he's kept with him. Um, he's somebody who regards perfectly legitimate criticism in the press as, you know, somehow a threat to the stability of the Indian state. I mean, lots of this is Trumpian, if you've been watching that particular show take place. Um, so you're seeing, you know, student journalists run cartoons about Modi and the students are, you know, arrested under, but India still has on its books, lots of colonial era laws that were used to like oppress independence fighters and so forth. So sedition laws and things like that, that they just, nobody ever bothered to get rid of them and nobody's ever used them. Right. Um, and they're using things like that to prosecute activists and lawyers and journalists and so forth. Um, and then at the same time, there's a whole group of people who we've always known were there because you don't get a movement like this in politics unless there's some hardcore of voters who are really energized about the racial and the religious stuff, um, who are seeing a government in power that shares their views and isn't that concerned about democratic institutions anyway, like the press and the judiciary and so forth, um, who are using this as an opportunity to pursue vigilante-type violence. Um, and so you are seeing now basically lynchings taking place. Um, and the the issue around which that's taking place is the consumption of beef. So one of these things when you talk to Hindutva nationalists about, okay, legislatively, what kind of policy agenda are you actually talking about? They'll tell you about things like, we want a national ban on beef consumption because devout Hindus don't eat beef, so nobody else in the country should be able to eat beef, right? And because devout Hindus don't eat beef, most of the beef is produced by Muslim butchers, right? So it's if you shut down all the butcher shops, that's a very targeted 
um, attack. And so you're seeing things like butchers being dragged out of their butcher shops and lynched, and that sort of thing is, is beginning to happen um, without a huge amount of, of consequence because you have this dismantling taking place of the rest of the institutions. And that I'm actually much, much more concerned about because that kind of thing survives potentially even after Modi himself is voted out of office in favor of somebody else. Um, that has long-term damage to it. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's very long-term damage. It's not totally unprecedented. Um, there was a period in the 1970s um, in uh, when Indira Gandhi, who had become very um, so somebody from the center left who had become very paranoid about challenges to her power, um, declared a period of emergency um, and, you know, sort of martial law and and was forced out over it. Right. Um, so so that there was that moment where I think the Indian Constitution hung in the balance really in the 70s and they were able to recover their institutions Um but I don't think that at that moment that was matched by huge waves of popular support of people going, this is great. Now we can go and like attack our local beef butcher. Right. Um, you know, so what but what troubles me, I think, is seeing the popular violence coupled with this institutional violence. Um, but that kind of thing maybe has legs. Um and at the time, there was an opposition party that was, you know, the BJP actually was just getting to its legs in the 70s. And so when people went, oh, boy, that Indira Gandhi really lost her mind, there was some alternative. But here you have um, a moment where the Congress party is just really in bad shape. Um, and so it also doesn't seem to me that there's going to be a serious challenge to what Modi and his allies are doing coming from them. So where it comes from is a... It's so a whole question. You are starting to see citizens rise up. There have been some protests under the hashtag of people looking on Twitter, not in my name, from, you know, sort of Indians saying this vigilante violence is not is not something we're on board with. Um, and we want the state to look properly into finding out who the people are that are perpetrating this violence and so forth. Um, so you are, you know, kind of beginning to see some resistance. But I think it's hard to see how that could actually change what's happening in electoral politics when you have an opposition party that is just like a zombie party yeah because i and also she said like people obviously are still very much voting for them because uh when we the the elections in Uttar pradesh were not very long ago uh and they voted in the bjp with quite a majority i think wasn't it yeah this was this was astonishing this was really very astonishing because um you know under the one of the guise of modi's populism right um, they they did a very strange thing um, at the end of last year. Was this the end of last year? Or was the end of last year? I think um, where they removed from circulation um, some high denomination banknotes, um, and they did it on under the guise of we're cracking down on you know rich elites and their black money, which is being shipped out of the country, and you know that sort of thing. Um, now, in practice, no, and there is lots of there are lots of wealthy people trafficking in in you know sort of illicit finance and so forth, and lots of the Indian economy isn't really on the books, right? But um, no rich elites were affected by this because the business papers reported pretty soon after this thing came into effect that you could see from like the Bloomberg transactions history and so forth um, that wealthy people and business people and political parties and organizations that may have been, you know, fudging their books and so forth, um, had had enough advance warning that this policy was coming, that they had 
transferred all their assets or moved them all into other you know, out of cash into something else or whatever um, before the thing came in. But what it did do is you take a huge amount of cash out of the economy overnight, it will just affect the whole ability of the cash economy to function, right? There just won't be enough cash in the system. So people who don't have bank accounts, who rely on cash for everything, which is lots and lots of the rural poor in India, um, their whole economy just kind of stopped working. Um, and you would think that something that shocking would have been devastating to the government. And yet, Uttar Pradesh, which is a, it's India's most largest state by population, um, it's a state with its own history of sectarian um, violence and tensions, um, and it's a very poor state with large rural areas, um, that this would be a state where you would test how much that kind of stuff, like the ability to functionally govern the country, matters when it's set against the kind of dog whistle stuff. Um, and instead of campaigning on defense of their financial policy, they just campaigned on the dog whistle stuff. And it turned out that that is enough to get you through, um, even while the whole currency system is melting down. And, and part of that is by saying, oh, this is about cracking down on rich people, even if rich people aren't harmed, um, that was good enough. That worked. That got some people. Um, and part of it is that, wow, the dog whistle stuff really works. Um, and then immediately after winning that local election, they appoint as the chief minister to run that particular state. So in other words, the job that Modi himself had had in Gujarat. Um, Yogi Adityanath, who is this incredibly right-wing um, Hindu rabble rouser who's been investigated by the police before for making statements that later incited violence. Um, so if this is a broad right-wing party with a, you know, kind of more economically conservative center and a more culturally conservative hard right, this is the Modi government sort of saying, we're going with this, the latter of those two versions of our politics, um, because we don't seem to see that there's any real electoral consequence for that. Um, and, and so that, that is, that is scary. Um, that is really scary. And I, you know, the week before that vote, I was speaking to a Congress politician who will remain nameless, who said, if they get away with this, in UP, like, we're in big trouble, right? Because if we can't campaign on basic dysfunction of government, then there's not a lot that we have. Um, so this could be, this is going to be a long time. I, I, I think it's possible that he could go because his own party might get fed up with him or he, you know, commit some, uh, some policy screw up. Um, but the center of Indian politics has moved in a way that, that should be very distressing because it's the world's largest democracy. Um, and if the world's largest democracy can't figure out how to be secular and multicultural, then we should all be very afraid. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We'll be back with Maha in a minute, but first... Hardly Global Broadcast. You know when kids plead and plead and plead to be allowed in charge of dinner or having a party or a pet and then you cave in, you go, OK, and then within a few days the cat is dead or your house is on fire or everyone has to eat card and you've realised, oh, wait, this was definitely a bad idea. Well, that's how the entirety of the US must feel right now with their current administration. Like a country-sized weekend at Bernie's. Although at least half of the population didn't approve it in the first place, and sadly the person who's meant to be in charge isn't actually dead, just emotionally and intellectually. Now, I won't pretend that I've been keeping up with US politics. Uh, it's a lot of it, and it's been pretty endless. I mean, in fact, part of me keeps hoping that Trump is just going to be impeached soon and then it won't matter, or someone will just convince him that to be a successful president like George W. Bush, he'll have to choke on a pretzel as well, and then he'll be found dead minutes later. But this past week has been remarkable in terms of news in America. So let me try my very best to break down what's happening. And I should say, it's not going to be the most thorough account because there are so many other sources for that. I just thought it was a bit necessary this week. In the past week, the New York Times got hold of some emails that showed the imaginatively named son of President of America and animated jelly baby Donald Trump. That's right, Donald Trump Jr., who looks like a cross between a stupid seal and wood varnish. The emails showed that he had set up a meeting with a Russian lawyer called Natalia Veselnitskaya to get information on Hillary Clinton during the election campaign, and that information might be helpful to Trump's presidential campaign instead. The New York Times had the emails ready to go on July the 10th. And it's worth noting that up until a few days before that, Orange Nightmare Jr.'s story was that he was sure he'd met with people that were Russian, but not in any specifically set up meetings, especially none while he was representing the election campaign. Then on July the 8th, the meeting came to light and he said, oh, actually, it was a meeting about a programme on the adoption of Russian children, which um, sounds like quite an easy programme. They all just sit inside each other, don't they? You can just stack them against a wall. Uh, and then on July the 9th, he said it was a meeting with someone who said she had info about the campaign, but he didn't know who that person was. And then on the 10th, after he found out that the New York Times were going to leak all the actual emails anyway, he panic tweeted all of them himself in the name of transparency. These emails said specifically who the person was, Russian lawyer Natalia Vesnitskaya, uh, that he set up a meeting with her, which happened to be just days before Hillary Clinton's emails were hacked during the election campaign, and that the meeting, as mentioned by PR man Rob Goldson, who he's emailing at the time, is part of Russia and its government support for Mr Trump. And I've quoted that bit. Now, what would have been really smart is for Donald Trump Jr. at that point to hold his hand up high, apologise for telling porcupines the last few months, and then give a proper account of what had happened. No, instead, the Trump team all hailed him for his transparency and somehow a professional lying shit weasel is now the pariah of truth-telling because he's exposed his own bag of fibs. That's a bit like me if I spent the last two days squishing flying ants in a very angry manner, then said I definitely wasn't doing that, and then after finding out that he had a video of me doing that, I released my own video of it and proclaimed myself to be king and protector of all flying ants. Which, let's be fair, I wouldn't because flants are fucking awful. 
Trump's Russia connections are now so wide and so many, uh, all the way from Russian bank loans supporting his previous building work, previous plans to build a Trump Tower in Moscow, uh, him allowing a Russian monster to live in Trump Tower, his former campaign manager Paul Manafort having secretly worked for a Russian billionaire who were aiding Putin's government, and that's not even getting to Michael Flynn, Jeff Sessions, or the sheer amount of times Trump has said he has had absolutely nothing to do with Russia in a way that if he protested anymore, I suspect he lives there and all we'd ever see is a holographic projection of him beamed in from the Kremlin. Although, to be fair, that would explain his odd colour and his fear of stairs. But looking at this past week alone, DJT Jr. may have provided the most damning bit of evidence all by himself. Or at least, the starting of a lot of damning bits of evidence. Now, I should say that him having this meeting doesn't mean Donald J. Trump Jr. has done anything illegal, unless you can 100% guarantee that Trump Jr. knew election law inside out. And let's face it, I have the feeling he's the kind of idiot man who sees a missing advert on the side of a milk carton and then opens it up to see if those people are inside. The meeting, though, does prove that despite Trump denying Russia had anything to do with the election, his son was meeting with Russian officials during his campaign. Oh yeah, sorry, I should have said, it turned out that not only was it Junior and the lawyer at that meeting, but also a Russian lobbyist, a Russian spy, a translator, PR man Rob Goldston, Jared Kushner's Trump senior advisor, son-in-law, and just waiting to be played by Jesse Eisenberg in a film person, Paul Manafort, and an eighth individual who's not to be named. Yes, that could mean it's Voldemort. There's a lot of Trump connections to Russia right there in that list. If you played the Kevin Bacon game, replacing Kevin Bacon with Russia and everyone else with Trump, it would be the world's most boring, piss-easy game. And in fact, just don't play it, it would be rubbish. The emails that were leaked also discussed Trump Jr. making a phone call to Emin Aglarov, who's the son of Aris Aglarov, a man known as the Trump of Russia, which sounds like what I'd call an epic long fart that made a noise like a triangular balalaika. Uh, but yeah, so there's another connection there as well. Jared Kushner, who we previously mentioned, lied or forgot to add several meetings with foreign officials onto his SF-86 security clearance form necessary for working in the White House when he became part of Trump's staff a few months ago. He later added more than 100 meetings, but he still, to this date, hasn't added this one with Donald Trump Jr. and the lawyer. Why not? And that could and should cause him to have his clearance revoked immediately. And, as I mentioned earlier, it may be nothing, but the meeting was for June the 7th, 2016. On June the 9th, Trump spoke quite a lot about national security to the press in the middle of his campaign. And then on June the 15th, all the leaked Democratic papers stolen by Russian hackers appeared. Which is just a little too convenient for my liking. Now, there is, of course, every chance that that's all coincidence, uh, that the Trumps are just so dense that they have no idea what's going on, or, like several Trump-supporting conspiracy theories, that somehow this is all an elaborate setup by Obama and his administration in order to knock Trump out of office. Which, if it were true, would mean that Obama was able to run a country while setting up a conspiracy theory that both rigged an election and a conspiracy for the aftermath of that election, which seems both massively pointless and also a huge mark of talent, because how did he do that all at once? Or this could be, and it's very likely, all very important signs that Russia were definitely involved with the 2016 US presidential election. But will anything happen because of it? I mean, it appears not. Trump supporters in America still think Donald Trump Jr. leaking his own emails is somehow fake news, which doesn't make any sense. And in fact, most Trump supporters are far more worried about losing their health care, which is a much, much bigger issue, currently falling off the radar due to the past week's mayhem. But that, with the healthcare and combined with his son's secret meetings, means that Trump's approval ratings are now the lowest for any president for 70 years. And this time round, there isn't a world war on. But the Republicans are still backing him. So where on earth do we go from here? Well, if there was Russia meddling, which it looks like there was, and let's face it, almost certainly was, then Donald Trump Jr. releasing those emails is a tiny step forward to unveiling all of it.
Unfortunately, with a complete lack of shamefacedness, honesty, or I don't know, basic humanity from the Trumps themselves, the only way to really race through those other steps and get to some sort of definitive and happy conclusion is if Donald Trump Jr. starts tweeting more evidence in the name of honesty before the world explodes in the contradiction of him both being the demise and saviour of America all at once. If I was the New York Times, I'd start giving little hints that they've got pretty much everything and then cross their fingers and wait. And now, back to Maha. And what's what's the kind of uh, the press in India doing? Does that does it kind of push uh, the BJP's policies? What's what situation is that in? Because you're saying that they they just kind of uh, managed to push the dog whistle politics. They weren't scrutinised for any of the other stuff they were doing. Uh, what's happened to India's press? Who who would who would be highlighting any issues that there are with, with the BJP? So it's it, it's it 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 is a very um, it's a partisan press, right? It has. Um, you know, kind of the right-leaning papers are mostly focused on the BJP's economic agenda um, and are, you know, tend, I think, to downplay some of the other stuff. Um, then you have a more progressive press that is trying, um, but you will find, you know, journalists being picked up on strange charges um you know, I've talked to, I'm a former journalist myself, and I've talked to, you know, reporter friends who are afraid. Um, and so I do think there's, there's, there's not enough serious scrutiny taking place in the, um, in the press that people who aren't already paid up to, wow, Modi's really scary, might be consuming. I think that's especially true in the, kind of vernacular press, so the Hindi press, the Tamil press, the you know, the local languages, right? Um, so the Anglophone press, I think, is a little bit more ideologically diverse, but a small percentage of the country are consuming um, are consuming the English language media. Um, there are, I think, you know, it's a very rapidly growing market economy, and you have all the problems with the media that you might expect in that setting. So you have issues of monopoly, you have kind of big corporations buying substantial stakes in a lot of the broadcast media outlets, so that has its own impact on what they're necessarily willing to say. Um, but I think the bigger problem is that the rights of the press to report are being, you know, sort of very aggressively curtailed. So it's difficult to file freedom of information requests. It's, um, you know, sort of if you report on things that are problematic for often not national government, but sometimes local um, state and local officials, um, then you might find that, you know, you get picked up on weird charges and things like that. So, I mean, there is there's erosion of press freedom taking place, even though constitutionally India has pretty strong press laws. Um, and I think that is going to be one of the big tests of, you know, whether the institutions survive is to what extent um, the press is able to resist this stuff. But there are also questions about a lot of these battles are being fought over and about the English language newspapers and television stations. And it's kind of hard to say what percentage of the population those are reaching. Sure, sure. And uh, why do you think, because we haven't heard a lot about Modi in the UK. Uh, I know he visited, I think, a couple of years ago, and they're talking about him visiting again, and he visited Trump uh, very quickly after he became uh, president. Uh, But we don't hear any of the we don't hear anything about how authoritarian he is or any or any of the damage it's doing to india um why do you think the global press is sort of ignoring it so this is a good question and the thing that has troubled me kind of the most um i think part of it is 
part of it, at least in the West, I think, is at the time when India's economy first really started to explode in the 1990s, from a political perspective, Western democratic states really welcome this as potentially presenting some kind of regional check to China. Um, now, as it happens both militarily and economically, I don't actually think they're close yet. Um, and India's growth has turned out to be slower than people thought it was going to be, and their, you know, sort of other attempts to project power in international politics haven't gone necessarily that well, and so that's that's moving much more slowly than people thought it was going to. Um, but having banked on that strategy, right, concessions were made not only in terms of um, you know lots of trade that we've now invested in India, but, you know, there's a U.S.-India nuclear arrangement. There's, um, you know, a whole set of things that we've—we put a lot of eggs in that particular basket. And now I think it would be—it's difficult for the U.S. or other Western actors to back away, um, because there's not a lot of leverage that we have anymore, having made so many of these policy concessions, um, on the assumption that we were dealing with a liberal power. And if it suddenly becomes a less liberal power, then we feel very stuck. Um, so some of that now, in retrospect, I think seems seems naive. Um, so that's part of it, I think. Um, I think that I think that the other part of it, at least in the U.S. case. Um, is that Modi and his party have—and I, I focus on the U.S. case because it's the country where if the U.S. decided that it was going to make a global issue of this, then it would be a global issue, right? Um, it, Modi and his party do a lot of fundraising from um, Indians and people of Indian descent living abroad. Um, who, so India doesn't have the kind of restrictions that other states might have on foreigners donating— into politics, if you have a—even if you're no longer an Indian national, if you are, like, a person of Indian origin and you carry, like, a national identity card, which they do issue, um, you know, there are ways for you to get involved. So they raise a huge amount of money from the Indian diaspora. So the result is that this government actually has a whole group of supporters externally in the wider Indian diaspora. Modi came to the States and spoke at Madison Square Garden, filled out this huge arena with basically Indian Americans, right? Um, so to the extent that there's a foreign narrative about his government, lots of that is being shaped by the fact that he has these very active support bases abroad. And then the other part of it is you meet the guy and he's a very, you know, there's a charisma there. He's a very effective speaker. He's, um, you know, he manages his brand extremely well. So I think that people are sort of charmed also, I think. Um, and, and internationally, they play up the stuff that people want to hear about internationally, like we're doing this for Indian business and we're developing these new manufacturing facilities and you should come and invest in you know, that sort of stuff, right? And the fact that that part of the agenda still exists allows them to tailor what they talk about Um Sure. And I, and I guess it's those are the bits of the, that are important to the rest of the globe rather than sort of looking at in India's environmental issues yep. or its equality yep. issues that, you know, the, the bits that will, will interest the West are the trading and the uh, and the, you know, the, and the GDP and all that. That's going to be the bits that interest us. And what um, I mean, I, I suppose you, you sort of mentioned earlier that, that it's probably just going to stick with Modi for a while. Is it, What do you think the future of 
India holds now under under this government? I mean, is it going to just escalate into something where where the world was, the rest of the world are going to have to pay attention? Um, I don't I don't know. I mean, I do think it's starting to trickle out. So the the New York Times has run a couple of pieces recently about the violence, um, and I think you know that is beginning to trickle out. I think that if if the way in which the ethno-religious politics has played out continues to be around kind of lifestyle things like diet, um, I think you could see that starting to affect the international business community, that if it becomes you actually won't be able to eat meat if you go and set up your Google office in India, then you might see that international audiences start to care about that, right? That it becomes a less hospitable place um, sure. to go. Um I think I think you are seeing more, you know, Indian activists and journalists starting to write about it for an international press, and they are picking it up. I think the violence is now reaching a level where they are beginning to pick it up. Um, but I think a lot of this also does have to come from the international Indian diaspora, I think, need to kind of look really hard at what they, and I include myself in that, we um, have enabled, um, and that that might be the point at which you start to see some international pushback because that's a group of people that have the ability to kind of go between um, and articulate what's happening. When, when are the next round of uh, elections in India? When do they take place? Would that be 2018 or is, there, is it more than four years? Um, in terms of general? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the next set of – so the India has both – it's a weird system. It has both a, um, a parliament and a – um, and a prime minister who's you know chosen out of the parliament in the way that you might have in a Westminster system, and then a president that is a separate position um, that's elected separately. Um, so there'll be two sets of general elections um, in 2019. Um, so it's a five-year term. Um, I think. I mean, there are ways in which you know, kind of. You can have early elections and things like that, but it will be it will be in 2019. Um, and so these local elections this year functioned as a kind of midpoint test um, of where things are going. And I I would still be very surprised if anything particularly significant happens um, to lodge the BJP from office um, in 2019. I think it's possible that Modi himself could go for internal party reasons, like people like that, you know, sort of. Authoritarian um, politicians are often deposed within democratic systems by their own party, right? That's at some point their own party gets fed up with the way they're making decisions. They don't consult anybody, that sort of thing. Um, in much the way that, you know, Labor could not remove Margaret Thatcher, right? At the end of the day, her own party removed her. So um, that, that sort of thing, I think, could you could see something like that happen. Well, so it's going to be an interesting next few years. Um, and just lastly, as our school podcast guests on this, uh, for the listeners, really, who would you recommend, um, apart from yourself, obviously, who would you recommend that they follow or read up on or research if they would like more information about Indian politics and what's happening there now? As we said, it's not in um, the UK news very often. So where should people be looking, especially, I suppose, for uh, stuff in English, I think would probably be quite useful. Sure, sure. Um so Ankish Mishra is a wonderful writer who everybody should read um, and who writes for The Guardian and other places. Um, and if you, you know, Google him, he'll be easy to find. Um, Aman Sethi is a magnificent Indian journalist who is writing really hard-hitting stuff and has been for years about um, 
what's happening in India. Um, he's Amanama on Twitter, um, and I can probably send through you know the Twitter handles and things if you um, okay. if you want them. Um, wait, I should say Aman is a disclosure. Aman is a friend. Um, Bashar is Pier, who is a um, Indian journalist now based in in New York, who um, writes about religion and Indian politics um, in different in different forms, and I think is a insightful critic of what's taking place. Um, so those would be three, I think, names that I would recommend. And then in terms of you know people who do want to think about the the economics and the geopolitics and so forth. Um, I might have a look at Nicholas Kohler, who's a German academic, um, who writes about kind of India and trade, um, and who would be an interesting person, I think, to think about from, from that perspective. Big thanks to Maha for speaking with me, and I hope that you listeners found the audio okay. I entirely blame Skype. I mean, how dare they provide a service that I don't have to pay for, which occasionally isn't amazing. Bah! Anyway, uh, Maha can be found on Twitter at, and I'll spell this for you, M A H. A-R-A-F-I-A-T-A-L. So that's uh, Maha Rafi Atal. And her website is maha-rafi-atal.com. And as I mentioned before, you can also regularly hear her on the brilliant Talking Politics podcast, uh, which is from the politics department at Cambridge University. And it's one of my weekly favourites. And they have proper microphones and no tiny percussionists at all. Uh, the people Maha recommended following on Twitter are at uh, Amanama, which is uh, A-M-A-N-N-A-M-A. Uh, and then there's at Nicholas Kohler, which is N-I-C-O. L-A-S-K-O-E-H-L-E-R uh, at Basharat Pier, which is B-A-S-H-A-R-A-T-P-E-R-E-R and uh, Pankaj Mishra, who is not on Twitter but writes regularly for The Guardian, so do check them out. Um, only one more week uh, and one more guest before this podcast takes a summer break, but if you have any suggestions for who that guest should be or what I should talk to someone about or what to discuss on this podcast return, do drop me a line, as always, at Parpol Bro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook page or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or, you know, you could tie a message to a cat, make the cat smell something that you assume is smells like me be careful what you choose and then let your cat deliver me the message but more likely wander off find someone else to live with who feeds it without tying stupid messages to it because it's a cat and really it hates that sort of thing and it hates you it really hates you best just to email me really isn't it For this week's question of the week, Q of the we, I asked you, the people, what sort of better reception could the UK give Trump if he visited? You know, if he's so concerned about an unwelcome party when he arrives, what on earth could we do to give the obscene tangerine weeble the greeting that he deserves? Rob Skeen on Facebook says we could line up monkeys to throw poop at him as he passes, although according to Russian news sources, he may like that, says Rob. Uh, I don't think he's into poop as well as peep, although actually, who knows? He hasn't started denying it quite a lot, uh, so if that happens, we know that he is. Uh, Matt Kinson says a giant straw-like Trump effigy called the Thicker Man. James Ross says he wants better reception. I think we should put him behind five bars. Uh, Emma Bridge says with Boris Johnson's water cannon, it's not like they're getting much other use. Uh, I don't think he ever actually purchased one in the end, which is a shame because with all the cuts that he gave to the fire brigade, it would have been quite handy if he could have passed that on. Uh, Nick Affia says, I think we should just turn out the lights and pretend no one's home. It would save a lot of the planet too, which I think he'd doubly hate. Um, Andy Zoidberg-Walker says, toga party, toga, toga, toga. Um, Chris Purchase Green says, a war across his runway um, at Budgie says uh, dunked in feces we should tell him that honour is reserved for the best people the very best and then he'll believe it and then we give him a trip on the circle line at night grim 
to be fair, if you've been on the Circle Line at night during the summer, you don't really need to be dunked in faeces. Uh, you just get a very similar feeling from all the collected sweat from a day's commuting. Really grim. Um, at Magic Darts says, uh, empty roads wherever he goes, dust and silence like the start of 28 days later. That will show the shredded, wheat-haired arsehole. That's what's what. Mr James Ewart says, static and interference. I think he's going on the reception gag there. Very sweet, James. Uh, at the Master's Beard says, I think the whole country should go on holiday and just leave an out-of-office message. But then he'd be left alone in the country by himself and fuck knows what he'd end up doing. Uh, you know, unless we sort of surround him with stairs and keep him scared. Um, at Grace M321 says, uh, like this, and then sent me a picture of the Queen just flipping the bird. That would be lovely. Do you know what? I'm not a big royal fan, but if Trump descended the stairs from Air Force One and there was the Queen just swearing at him, I'd take everything back. I'd, I'd, I'd donate some of my own money to Buckingham Palace repairs. Um, at Ethan D. Lawrence says, London has a pretty good reception, all told, uh, as we could just throw our phones at him. At John Edwards 7175 uh, says, show him your buttocks. Now, I don't know if that means me show him my buttocks, because I'll be honest, the lower half of my body is, is a fucking dream. It's like it's from one of those flip chart books where they've given me the lower half of someone else's better body. Uh, it's still quite a short body, unfortunately. It's the top half. If I flashed in my stomach, I think he'd be sad um at mini mayor says massive banner saying welcome president clinton oh that would be beautifully mean um at chris there's two eyes there so i assume that's how you say it chris 337 uh says with streakers many male streakers to frighten him back on that plane um at benson mike says a female doctor who uh and at chronicle flask has gone along for the same thing uh by the doctor pointing her sonic screwdriver at him gesturing for him to get back in his plane i like both of those but i don't think he's got any understanding of what Doctor Who is, because Doctor Who can travel through time, whereas Trump can just only plunge a country backwards. Um, at Real Neil Turner says, how about a marching band playing a medley of Daft Punk tunes and everyone reacts as if it's the first time it's ever happened. Oh my God, can you imagine if we managed to orchestrate that to happen all across the world with every visit he ever did? It would slowly drive him insane. So I always remember... Um, I think it was from a Radio 4 show with Punt and Dennis some years ago, uh, not the Now show, something else, uh, where one of them suggested that at night you could sneak into someone's room, paint everything black, white, everything white, black, uh, put everything on the floor, on the ceiling, everything on the ceiling, on the floor, and then when they wake up, they'll think they're in a photo negative. Yeah, just do those sort of brain tricks. Beautiful. At Stephen McDade says Napalm Death live on the tar back at Heathrow, blasting out a version of Scum as soon as the plane doors open. I like that. I worry that if they're on the tarmac at Heathrow, you're going to have to coordinate a lot of planes uh, to not just destroy what sounds like one of your favourite bands very quickly. Um, at Bobador says thousands lining the streets, all pissing in his general direction. A guardy loo of honour. At Super Fairy Andy says a wall around Air Force One. That would be brilliant as soon as it lands. Just erect one quickly. Uh, although if Brexit happens uh, as it, we're planning, we might not have any builders to do that um at alexa d wilson says a mass tutting uh, at rainy 101 katie price singing live with morris dancing in the background even i'm shocked at how cruel i can be to be fair rainy that is particularly horrible um at hammer time c says direct him to the non-euq at the airport and ask him to join the back of the line and my very favorite at early later review sent me a tweet that simply says a man dressed as a giant vagina that attempts to grab him as he steps off air force one Oh, that's wonderful. Very well done, early, later review. What an absolute champion. Um, last partly political broadcast, Q of the Wee Before Summer, will be next Sunday, so please keep your eyes peeled for that on the Facebook group or the Twitter page. Not literally peeled, obviously. That is disgusting and really pointless. And no one wants your eye skin. It's horrible. Brexit fallout! Brexit fallout! Brexit fallout! 
aside from all the questions that arise with Brexit falling apart like a chocolate orange, as the National Audit Office have suggested, uh, you know, there's many questions that arise from that. For example, are the Brexit negotiations 10% smaller than they used to be? And seriously, why isn't Terry doing this? It's his bloody orange. Aside from those important queries, Amias Morse from the National Audit Office was completely right. All the signs seem to be suggesting that nothing with Brexit is going as planned. Although, considering there wasn't really a plan in the first place, no one's really that sure what the plan should be. Nothing is going to unplanned, I suppose I should say, and I feel like that should really be our new national motto in the UK. Firstly, remember all the blaming of Project Fear and scaremongering about Brexit hurting the economy? Well, we haven't left yet, and the Office of Budget Responsibility has warned that public finances are in a worse shape than pre-2008. And if we leave the customs union without something else in place, we'll be in so much doo-doo that we can export it as manure, except we can't because the system won't be in place because we're stupid. The customs union IT system doesn't look like it's going to be ready in time for us to full Brexit, meaning up to £34 billion of public income could be completely lost until it is. And if you've ever had a new IT system installed at your work, you know that there'll probably be another £34 billion lost once it's up and running and crashing every two minutes till everyone realises you shouldn't use it to check your eBay bids or do all your torrents. Then, after months and months of insistence that the UK won't have to pay a Brexit bill, comes the admittance from the government that actually, surprise, we will. Everyone who advised you was actually right. And we're going to have to up to and possibly over £80 billion. It does make me wonder what happens when any of the Brexiteers in the government get some sort of, like, parking fine. You know, if Liam Fox comes out and finds a parking ticket on his car, I'm pretty sure that he tells everyone around him that no one has to pay anything and it'll all be fine. And then eight months later, when his car's in some sort of lock-up and he's got a quadruple amount of money to pay, he has to sheepishly crawl back and go, Oh, can I borrow some money? I was a bit wrong. I mean, saying that, of course, Liam Fox doesn't drive anywhere. He's got Adam Werity to do that for him. The other bit of recent news is that we are now at the bottom of the EU Growth League doing even worse than Greece. That's it. We're the worst out of 28 countries in the EU on growth. And Greece, to be fair, at least knew enough about what they were doing to riot about it, whereas we're all completely and utterly fucking confused and just sitting here waiting to die. Britain need to make Brexit transition plans, but the EU won't let us make transition plans until other decisions have been made, including the deal for EU citizens in the UK because the current one is shit, and things like the Brexit bill that we haven't yet decided that we're going to pay, even though we've just admitted that we now will pay it. But the UK don't want to make a better deal with any of those things until a transition phase is done. Yes, it seems more and more like the Brexit that we're getting is one that means we're definitely losing our place as a big player to becoming one that's not even a small player in a big league, but more an observer who bought a hot dog and then all the ketchup went on our trousers and then our team lost there's loads more brexit and i'm going to do a more in-depth guide to it all for your summer enjoyment next week so that you can spend those beautiful hot months having some vague clue about what actually is or isn't going on but give you a little preview it's mostly just ah And that is all for the Partly Political Broadcast, episode 69. <laughs> 69. Um, thank you for lending me your ears. I hope you don't add interest to that lending, as otherwise I'll have to return your ears with extra ear bits on them. And no one should have to ask where I got those extra ear bits from. It's quite gross. Um, I hate having to collect them. Anyway, if you haven't reviewed this podcast, please do so on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or, you know, using lemon juice on a bit of tea-stained paper so only eight-year-old spies can read it. If you're going to the Edinburgh Fringe, I will see you up there. Don't forget 2.30 every day at the Waverley 
bar on the free fringe, except not the 15th, not the 19th. Uh, one day off, one flying back to London for a friend's wedding. Thanks, friend. Um, or uh, come and see me at one of the previews before I go to Edinburgh. You can do that as well. And um, big, big thank you to Acast for hosting this show and to my brother, The Last Skeptic, for providing all the beats, as always, and this week trying to fix the interview audio to remove all the beats. He is both the beat provider and the beat taketh away. Uh, I am going to be back next week when Parliament will have broken for the summer if it's not too broken already. And Silly Season asks us all, what exactly do I have to do to be sillier than the past 11 months? Jesus, guys, give me a fucking break. Bye! This week's show was brought to you by No Numbers. Oh, OK, there was a number, but I didn't know what it was or what it was about. OK, no, no, there is a number, but it's just a meeting about something irrelevant. What, what do you mean? You know what the number is? OK, OK, there's four numbers, I admit it, and I know all of them, and I met with them about really dodgy number stuff, but I'm only telling you that because I'm king of all the truths and I am the most honest guy ever. I'm proper high quality. Thanks, bye. <laughs> Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.